It's Thursday, October 2nd, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. It's Attorney General Week on The Gist. I say that maybe so in the future you'll be oriented, right? Maybe you'll say, oh, what was I doing in fall of 2014? Well, let's see, it was Attorney General Week on The Gist. Or maybe it'll be one of those newsreels. 2014, the Royals were running in Kansas City. Ariana Grande was telling America she was my everything. And it was Attorney General Week on The Gist. Because you know, in 2034, the old-time guy voice is going to come back. So yesterday, I asked the Maryland Attorney General... Would he rather be called attorney generals than the whole attorneys general? And he, he made the political answer. Sure, I'd change if other people did. But he knows what the Wall Street Journal reported a few years ago. Quote, historically, general refers not to rank or command, but to the breadth of their practice. The first known use of the term attorney general occurred in England in 1398 in a certificate from the Duke of Norfolk's four attorneys general. These lawyers were known at first as general attorneys and later came to be known as attorneys general. I like to apply it to different walks of life. Like if I were to tell you that today, Ken Pantera, Tito Santana, and Don Morocco, yes, three former World Wrestling Federation Champions International, decided to snack separately at three different Thanks Gods It's Friday, where they simultaneously ordered Popper's Jalapeno, and later were forced to consume individual servings of milks of magnesia. Then we'd be good. On the show today in the spiel, we're losing a fight that we're actually winning 100 to 1. A conversation about Bill Cosby, how his image is a buttress against seemingly credible allegations. But first, the Blackwater trial. Years in the making, with giant implications, the verdict is nigh. In September of 2007, so about seven years and two weeks ago, there was gunfire in Nassau Square in Baghdad. Believing they were in danger, possibly under attack, private contractors from Blackwater Security shot and killed 17 civilians, injured others. There was chaos. There's been conflicting reports about counterfire or the perceptions of counterfire. The FBI investigation found that of the 17 Iraqis killed by the guards, at least 14 were shot without cause. Then a legal process began. The case against these guards was thrown out in 2011. The government screwed up. Charges against one of these Blackwater guards was totally dropped. One pled guilty, and that plea was the basis of the government's case against the others. Three of these guards have been charged with manslaughter. Nicholas Slatton is charged with murder. The trial of the guards ended over a month ago. The jury is deliberating. A verdict may be soon. Matt Apuzo has been covering this story for the New York Times. Hello, Matt. Thanks for joining us from the federal courthouse in Washington. Good to be here. What has been the defense? Basically a fog of war defense? Well, I mean, the defense is that here's this convoy of Blackwater guys, and they're responding to a car bombing, a huge car bombing in Baghdad. So they go out and they lock down Resource Square, and one of the cars that is stopped begins to sort of creep up toward them. And they say, we thought that was the second car bombing. You know, this is a vehicle-borne explosive, and it's coming right for us. And so they blow up this car. Then they say they begin taking fire from all sides, and they're shooting and trying to suppress what they thought was an ambush. There was evidence at trial that in real time, people on the radio were reporting 
we're taking fire. I'm, I see, I see muzzle flashes. And some of the, the government's own witnesses also said, yeah, I also saw fire that day, or I also believe that first white car was a threat. So, it, you know, piecing that together is really what this is all going to come down to. Uh, how, how a jury reconstructs those hectic few minutes is really going to be the key to the case. Did you get the sense or did you ever wonder, wow, I wonder if a jury can follow this? I mean, there's a lot of evidence and it's a lot of time and they've been deliberating for a month. No, I I didn't get that impression at all. This was a really engaged jury. There were people on the jury who clearly wanted to see the witnesses' eyes. Like they didn't want the interpreter to stand in the way. They didn't want the defense attorney to walk in front of them. I mean, they were a very engaged jury. So I don't think that's the issue at all. For a month, it's been a black box, it seems like. Although I'm relying on your reporting, so maybe you've had some stories that are spiked, but I haven't actually seen any stories before yesterday about this trial anywhere, about these deliberations. Yesterday was the first substantive note. Yeah. The only notes they passed before that were like, you know, we want easel paper. Yeah. You know, I mean, stuff like that. The sort of routine stuff. But yeah, this was the first substantive note. It indicated that they had, they had a question about the very last charge on the verdict form, so indicating that they're towards the end of their deliberation. So we're, we're waiting. We're, we're waiting for a verdict. This seems like a much bigger deal in Iraq than it is in the United States, I mean to the public. It's certainly a big deal in Iraq. If it's not a big deal in the United States today, it, that really just speaks to the fact that it's taken seven years to get here. It, you know, it's hard to overstate the significance of Blackwater in 2007. It was America's leading security contractor in Iraq. The Nisor Square shooting really solidified that image abroad of America as sort of like reckless and unaccountable. And it was just really awful for uh, for America's image uh, in the Middle East. It was a real low point in the, in the Iraq war. Whether it remains a big deal, certainly in Iraq, as you said, that just sort of speaks to the time that's that's lapsed. Was there a big policy debate about whether to prosecute or how to prosecute? If there was a debate, it was a one-sided debate with the Iraqi government saying these guys should stay in trial here, and we were saying, no, absolutely not. The seven years that it took, the stops and starts, I know you're a reporter and you might not want to characterize it, but were there screw-ups? Would you say that there were screw-ups? Oh, no, there were screw-ups. There were screw-ups. Go ahead, then. There were government missteps. There were things that the government did that appeared to to try to keep this case from going to, for, to trial. For instance, there was testimony after the shooting that some of the State Department guys on the scene were actually gathering up shells, you know, shell casings, to try to get the Blackwater contractors off. Because, you know, remember, State Department really relied on Blackwater to keep them safe. So there was that. Uh, the government, went with a capital G, made some certainly some mistakes on the prosecution side, uh, missing the deadline to indict Slatton being only one of the, the big ones. There's an entire new prosecution team because uh, a federal judge threw the entire case out and said prosecutors had mishandled evidence. Ultimately, that got overturned and the case got restored. But this has not been a great case for the government. And so the fact that we're we're here speaks to sort of the fact that this administration has really gone out and pushed the idea that they're going to see this through the finish line. Remember when the case got thrown out by a federal judge, Joe Biden actually announced 
that the government would appeal, mm-hmm. personally announced it in Iraq. So, I mean, it just shows you the di- diplomatic and political uh, overtones of this case. If there is acquittals across the board, what message will that send? What will the implications be? You know, I think part of this has always been uh, proving to the Iraqi government that the American system of justice will ultimately bring justice. I'm sure that if there were to be acquittals across the board, the Iraqis would be unhappy and there would be some diplomatic issues to smooth over. And if there are convictions, what are the implications of that? I mean, I'm sure the government would say, you know, it was a long slog, but we got here and the system worked. And you can put your faith in the American criminal justice system. Um, But one thing you can be sure is if there are convictions, there will be appeals upon appeals on appeals, because there are so many appellate issues in this case, not the least of which is whether the United States government even has a jurisdiction to bring this case, because the only way the government has jurisdiction to bring this case is whether these contractors were military contractors or should be regarded as military contractors, and they were State Department contractors. So it's going to be have to dealt with uh, under appeal. So there are convictions. This is not going to be the, We won't have heard the last of Blackwater. Matt Apuzzo, reporter for the New York Times, covering the Blackwater trial. Thank you so much, Matt. Thanks a lot for having me. I'm not going to do an ad today. Well, I am going to do an ad, but it's an ad for me and for people I like. The me part is I'm part of a Slate sports podcast called Hang Up and Listen. I'm a third of it. And we're doing a live show on Tuesday, October 8th in Brooklyn at the Galapagos Art Space. Roy Blunt Jr., the author, the Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me panelist, the guy with the cool southern drawl who knows a lot of stuff about the Pittsburgh Steelers. He's going to be there. So please come out if you're in the New York area or if you want to jet in, that's cool. That'll be in Brooklyn on October 8th. Same day across the country, the Belasco Theater in L.A., the Slate Culture Fest, will be culturing it up with the very cultural Natasha Leone. You know her from Orange is the New Black. She's awesome. The Slate Culture Fest people are awesome. L.A. is awesome. And we know, L.A., you could come out to support the Slate Culture Gab Fest. If I wasn't doing this thing in Brooklyn, I'd want to be in the audience there. And you could go to slate.com slash live for all the information about both these events. Earlier this year, Chris Rock gave Bill Cosby a Lifetime Achievement Honor at the American Comedy Awards, and he called Cosby, quote, the greatest comedian to ever live. It might seem like hyperbole, but when you think about it, there's a very good case to be made for that. There's a new book out, a biography by Mark Whitaker called Cosby, His Life and Times, which more or less makes the case and puts Cosby in the context of the racial, social, and economic times where he grew up. Of course, not mentioned in this book is something hanging over Bill Cosby's head, that four women have told similar stories of Cosby sexually assaulting them. These accounts were made public on the Today Show and People magazine, and in every case, Cosby is said to have lured a woman to a private place, drugged her, and assaulted her. Well, I wanted to talk about Bill Cosby, his comedy, and why when we talk about him, it's so different than when we talk about other suspected or alleged uh, sexual assaulters. Tanner Colby is with me. He's the author of Some of My Best Friends Are Black, The Strange Story of Integration in America. He also wrote a biography of John Belushi and The Chris Farley Show, a biography in three acts. Hello. Hello. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. 
Oh, are you a fan of Cosby? Were you a fan of Cosby? I was a fan of Cosby. I don't think, if you were a child of the 80s, you couldn't not be a fan of Cosby. He's so intertwined with Reaganism, I think. I mean, I know Reagan was elected in 1980, but the Cosby show was the height of when Reagan, you know, won the landslide election, and it was just about safety and family and mourning in America. Well, the thing about Cosby is that he's both, right? He's this very safe you know, family-oriented thing, and that's how white America perceived him. But if you read the subtext of that show, people say, well, it wasn't really that racial. But all the art on his walls is all the great Harlem Renaissance painters, all of the references to colleges. He's got pennants from HBCUs and sweatshirts from HBCUs. So the black community, the year that Denise uh, Huxtable went off to Hillman College, applications to HBCUs spiked by almost 20% nationwide. So the message that the black community took away from that show was very much about ethnic solidarity and being true to yourself and to your own race. And so it was almost like we were watching two different shows. Mark Whitaker is a guy who's very well educated, uh, achieved a lot in life. He's an African-American. Obviously, he's looking at Cosby through his own lens. And we should also say that he got cooperation from Cosby. This was an authorized biography. So it's going to be heavily influenced by who Mark Whitaker is and what his motivations are. However, were you struck by the just total lack of addressing the issue of sexual assaults in this uh, this authorized biography? I was shocked that it wasn't even mentioned at all, even if to rebut it. Yeah. Uh, the reason that he gave, the rather weak reason that he gave to Kate Arthur at BuzzFeed, was that he didn't want to print anything that he couldn't independently corroborate, which is strange because the fact that the lawsuit was filed and the allegation, that was in People magazine. So you can corroborate that the scandal came up. You may not be able to corroborate the truth of the allegations, but you can, it was an incident that happened. We know this. Yeah. And how can Whitaker say that this is a definitive look without that? I mean, does he make the case that this is uh, how we need to consider Cosby? But OK, let's put aside in a box these very serious allegations. I think it was, I mean, without being able to read the man's mind, I think two things. One, it was the price he paid for access, uh, yeah. either explicitly or just, you know, tiptoeing around it. And then also it didn't fit with the narrative he wanted to to play of this man overcoming these racial barriers and redefining comedy uh, with his own sensibility. It's like a third act wrench that doesn't make any sense with the rest of the story. And if you threw that in there, then the whole story, you know, stops making sense. But you've done biographies of comedians. That's not good enough. You can't say that these extremely important things that could be defining about a person didn't fit in with my narrative or act structure. Actually, I can because... Anytime you're doing a biography, let's dispense with the myth of objectivity. Yeah. You, you, you amass a library of facts and stories and anecdotes, a lot of which are unsubstantiated or unsubstantiatable because it's like, hey, Chris Farley called me at 2 in the morning and told me he wanted to kill himself. No one else was there. So you have a wealth of information and you have to decide what story are you going to tell. You can tell a story of John Belushi or Chris Farley that paints them as out-of-control crazy people or people who are determined to get better but failed. You can paint both of those stories, but you have to pick the one that you think is the truth. Yeah. And as I said, the allegations about Cosby were aired interviews on the Today Show, interviews in People magazine. So this, these weren't obscure places. These weren't places that were divorced from celebrity culture. These are kind of the main vectors of celebrity culture. Yet the allegations don't attach themselves to Cosby. Why not? I have two theories on that. One is just the idea of once a narrative is set, it's very, very hard to change it. They've done studies on this, like conservatives have a, you know, Obama's a socialist, so no matter what evidence you give them, 
He's a six And in fact, counter evidence just cements the original impression. Exactly. Yes. So with Michael Jackson, he was eccentric. He was a recluse. We didn't have a whole lot of information about his life. There were all these st- statues of Peter Pan everywhere. And so once that allegation got leveled at him, that became the narrative. In fact, Michael Jackson's narrative is that he might be gay, he might be a pedophile, he might be a man-child virgin. You can actually say whatever you want about Michael Jackson because his narrative is that you can say whatever you want about Michael Jackson. Right. And whereas Woody Allen, you know, his characters in his films were a little pervy. Uh, he had, you know, he was going after his wife's adopted daughter. So once you shoved... The you entire know, plot of Manhattan. The entire yeah. plot of Manhattan, the entire plot of Husbands and Wives. And so... The narrative stuck with Cosby. It it doesn't fit. Like, even as I want to give these women who make these allegations, you know, full credence that they're being honest and that these these things really happen. Like, I have the hardest time in the world wrapping my head around it because he's Cosby. There's so much more evidence against Cosby doing these things than there is against Woody Allen doing well, this thing. Well, a there's more evidence against Cosby than Woody Allen. That's number one. Two, the evidence against Michael Jackson was disproven in a court of That's law. That's true. And yet the story won't go away. The story, the you know, the narrative com- becomes that Michael Jackson somehow got away um, when, in fact, we know for a fact that the allegations against Jackson weren't true. The other thing about it, other than it just doesn't square with the narrative that we want to tell ourselves about America's dad, is both with Allen and with Jackson, you had so much grist to feed the media cycle. You had, you know, Mia Farrow coming out of courtrooms every day and just the media following it all the time. With this story, you had, you know, two interviews that these women gave on TV and a paper denial from Cosby's spokesperson. You can't keep the story in the media long. There's no grist for the mill. And so it just it glanced off him and then it just faded away. So in your uh, your Michael Jackson book, which is called Remember the Time, you followed him the last couple years of his life. Correct. Yeah. What was it about that book about? how you constructed it that, you know, in your own estimation, didn't quite land with the uh, book-buying public? Because it's just a quiet, intimate look at the sort of humble life he lived in the past few years. Like, 80% of that book is him helping his kids with his homework or just, you know, uh, renting DVDs and staying in for movie night. And it was just a a small portrait of the man behind the scenes. There was a lot of drama and anguish about what he was going through, but it wasn't any kind of big sensationalistic narrative. And the problem we ran into was that we ran into the wall of the established narrative of Michael Jackson, which in this country is wacko jacko. Um, And the press, uh, when that book came out, uh, it really just sort of pulled out the one or two eccentric behaviors that were in the book and put wacko jacko in the headline, uh, which totally had nothing to do with what was in the book. And then the fans, meanwhile, uh, there's a certain subgroup of fans uh, in, in the Michael Jackson community who have their own narrative, which they're actually called Peter Pan's this group of fans, uh, which is that he was an innocent, he was an angel, he never did anything wrong. And in the book, there's a good amount of profanity because people speak with profanity. And I have all these reviews on Amazon. It's like, how dare you use profanity? Michael would never <laughs> curse. And so they don't, they don't want to hear the truth either. Yeah. The lesson of writing an honest book about Michael Jackson is that people didn't really want the truth about Michael Jackson. Yeah. People wanted to stick with the narrative they had. If the allegations are somehow proved during Cosby's life, after he dies, do you think we'll retroactively go back and reassess? Yeah. I mean, I think you'd have to. Um, then it becomes a question now that, that plagues Woody Allen and everyone else, can you separate the art from uh, the person who did it? You know, I think if Whitaker had wanted to just write a book about Bill Cosby's work, 
and start with I Spy and end with The Cosby Show and not deal with all these latter-day sitcoms or end with the death of his son, you know, then you could say, well, I just wrote a book about his career, yeah. and that's why the allegations aren't in there. But if, if you purport to do a comprehensive biography, it has to be comprehensive. Tanner Colby is the author of Some of My Best Friends Are Black, The Strange Story of Integration in America, The Chris Farley Show, Belushia Biography, and Remember the Time Protecting Michael Jackson in His Final Days. Thank you, Tanner. Thank you. And now the spiel. ISIS, where losing isn't an option, but winning has an impossible definition. So here in the U.S., Ebola is on our shores. Nutjobs are sprinting through the White House like liquored-up streakers at Soldier Field. So let's take some solace by turning overseas, where the fighting is fierce and the body count is real, not potential. ISIS or ISIL or the Islamic State is on the march. Actually, they're on the run in large part because the U.S. has launched over 300 airstrikes against these Sunni militants in the last few months. About a quarter of the strikes are on ISIS fighters in Syria, the rest in Iraq. Britain even launched its first strike the other day. But still, we're told we're losing. And this is because of two things. One is the definition of what the battlefield is. The other one is the definition of winning. So The Economist doctored up a photo of Barack Obama in a flight suit evoking George W. Bush and the Mission Accomplished banner. That occasioned The Guardian to opine... Quote, the West has no plan for winning the war against ISIS, only avoiding defeat. The Daily Beast yesterday had a story titled, ISIS is winning the online jihad against the West. Nick Kristoff argues in today's Times, the terrorists are fighting smarter than we are. All right, a couple things. All the arguments rest on a definition of the battlefield as something other than the literal battlefield. They're saying that ISIS's propaganda message is beating the U.S. or the West or whatever kind of voice of moderation you can imagine. The thing is, it's not. It's not. Sure, their message is virulent and scary, and it has found some purchase in some quarters, but it's not a winning message. It's new. It motivates some people. But there are a lot of reports that the Muslim world is turned off from ISIS's ideology. They're turning off would-be converts. Anyway, the important thing is not their message. It's that whatever group was having military success against the great Satan is going to gain adherence, no matter if they advocate the return of the caliphate or the re-election of Mayor McCheese. I'm Mayor McCheese, and I do not approve this message. That's if Mayor McCheese were like Taft. Okay. But what about the battlefield itself? There, the U.S., U.S. officials are also fairly hesitant to say the U.S. is winning. Here's Admiral John Kirby at a recent press briefing. We still believe ISIL remains a very potent force. Yes, they've changed some of their tactics. There's absolutely no question about that in response to the pressure that we put them under. I understand. It's a long war. It's a slog. You don't want to give up the fight. But yeah, there have been 310 airstrikes as of yesterday. We've dropped bombs, missiles, we've targeted. We have made ISIS a bit less potent. Look at it this way. ISIS has killed two Americans. How many ISIS fighters have Americans killed? It's tough to say. The Pentagon releases figures about munitions fired and targets hit. Like, here's an example of a Pentagon press release. U.S. military forces continue to attack ISIL terrorists in Iraq using a mix of attack bombers and fighter aircraft to conduct 11 airstrikes Wednesday. This was on September 25th. One airstrike west of Erbil struck ISIL fighters and damaged an ISIL armed vehicle. Five airstrikes south of Kirkuk struck ISIL fighters, destroyed an ISIL tank, an ISIL vehicle, and an ISIL Humvee. Five airstrikes west of Baghdad destroyed an ISIL Humvee, four checkpoints, two guard towers, etc., etc. So there's no body count. Sometimes the military releases a video. You see a vehicle, a moving vehicle, 
uh, a targeting site shows up, vehicle goes boom, that vehicle wasn't driving itself. So we don't have a body count on the fighters, but we know that fighters are being killed. There is a group called the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights. It's quoted by all news organizations. It's not perfect, but they really do the best job of who died fighting in Syria. And they frequently report ISIS fighters targeted by United States killed. They also report ISIS fighters clash with YPG fighters. These are Kurdish fighters in Syria. They're sometimes aligned with the Peshmerga. In a way, the United States arms them, so maybe you want to take credit. So again, it's hard to get an exact number, but you know what? It's hundreds. It's maybe in the thousands. The United States has been killing ISIS fighters at a ratio of hundreds to one when weighed against the number of Americans who have died. So there are a couple of conclusions to draw. One, obviously, the admiral's right. Still not enough. ISIS must be defeated, of course. But some of the very same people who decry the idea of the permanent war, who are the first to point out that the U.S. is easily manipulated into war, those are the same people who are advancing the idea that the U.S. can't beat ISIS, that it isn't beating ISIS, that the only way to say we've won is the total disappearance of all their fighters from the field and the entirety of their ideology from social media. But also, I've been thinking about Gaza. There, one of the criticisms of the Israelis was something called disproportionate response, meaning superior firepower and a disproportionate death toll on one side. That's exactly what's happening with the U.S. fight against ISIS. I raise this not to impugn the American mission and also not to excuse excesses on the part of the Israeli military that might have happened, but to point out that the reason the U.S. and the West aren't getting any guff for killing the barbarians of ISIS is that ISIS is made up of a bunch of barbarians. It does seem like the doctrine of disproportionate force has an unacknowledged escape clause, except against barbarians. So why do you think the Israelis want to paint Hamas as barbarians? Because the international community has no problem slaughtering barbarians. I'm sure Israel would also point out, and because Hamas are barbarians. But without even getting into the weeds of that, you see why it's attractive to paint your enemy as such. More than attractive, really, a get-out-of-condemnation-free card. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi produces The Gist, but before she was brought on board, we had to sign a series of agreements prenuptial. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcast, shaved his head because he was tired of going through several bottles of Selson's Blue a month. Hey, it's a pledge drive. I'm not going to tell you about all the places ending in .com where you can email us and write to us and Facebook us. You've heard those before. I want to tell you about the pledge drive. And what we mean by pledge is not money. Don't give us money. Make a pledge to us. Make a vow. We need you to help us and help you. Help the gist continue. And what we'd like you to do is to pledge to us that you will sign someone else up for the gist. Not just tell people about it, which is great. Not just tweet about it, which is awesome. But go into people's cell phones, take it, and maybe if you have to download the whole podcast thing, you have to download the whole podcast thing. But it's not just evangelizing, it's actually subscribing to the gist. Pledge to tell a friend, a colleague, a beloved uncle, a lightly tolerated aunt, Tell them all to listen to the gist and give them the means to do it. Don't just evangelize, mobilize. Grab their iPhone, grab whatever device they have, their computer, and download it for them. The life you're enriching might be your own, but more to the point, it will be mine. But I thank you for it. 
because the answer to the question, how do we expand the podcast's reach? It's the same as the spoiler for Soylent Green. It's people. It's people. Soylent Green and the gist is people. Thanks for listening.